You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. dying? I must be dying. I should be cold. It's the middle of winter. I can feel the blood leaving my broken body. But instead, I'm so warm. No, not even warm. Hot. Burning. I can't speak, can't move. But I can feel in this broken body of mine is screaming. Boiling. And those white flakes, they fall down on this winter night, this cold, cold winter night. The white drifts gently down to blanket me. Each inhalation of it burns my insides worse, cuts me like icy glass. And he looks down. It looks down. White, too. No face, though, I know it's saying. I tried to warn you. <laughs> and isn't that just right? Isn't that just right? Any fool could have seen this coming. Any fool but me. And how did... How did it start? It's hard to remember. It feels like my whole life is flashing before my eyes. Rhonda, the wedding, the kids, and further back, my folks, my father, coming home from the mine, me starting there against his wishes, only later understanding, but it always seems to come back to the mine, maybe because I've always been here. But when did this start? Focus. Oh, yes. It was Jacques dying last year, I suppose. One year ago to the day. Christmas. Now that I think about it, I don't know how long Jacques was supervisor at the mine. A long time, no doubt, before the job killed him. Well, I guess it was lung cancer that killed him, but same difference. Worked into his grave at the ripe old age of... Well, who can say? Don't know that either. Jacques had one of those dry, desolated faces that could have been 55 or 85. I didn't want the job. I'd always been content right where I was. Decent enough job, good salary, good enough to support a family. 
But the problem is that nobody else wanted it either. Not with all the uh, changes in the air. The trouble. I was the most senior, though, so it fell on my shoulders. And it was heavy on those shoulders, heavy right away. Now, like I said, it was lung cancer that killed Jock. Though, if lung cancer was the knife, then stress was the fellow holding that knife. But as for how it actually happened on that night one year ago, well, Jock, he just sort of expired. One minute he was up, looking over quotas, sucking a cigarette down to the filter, and the next he was on the ground. No shaking, no spasms. Just dead. There were mixed feelings that night from all of us who were there, and it was all of us who were there, which is why those feelings were mixed. It was Christmas, you see, and there we were working the night away, and we'd been so goddamn pissed off at Jock that whole day, that whole week. The quotas, you see. The quotas. The other mines in the province had been closing down for a while, one by one. Only a handful in the whole country left operating. But the demand was as high as ever, and it was up to us to meet that demand. No matter what it took. No matter the hours. It wasn't Jacques' call, of course, and we knew that. Though sometimes you need someone to direct that anger at. And we did, and our wives and our children too. So... Maybe it was that what made him keel over. I don't know. I do know it's why I didn't want the job. But that's life for most. Doing things you don't want to do. Shoveling other people's shit. And it makes no difference, even if you're holding the biggest shovel. I started immediately. Jock hadn't even been loaded up into the ambulance before the owner was called about the news. I was asked into the office, given the promotion, and tasked with getting everyone to the end of the shift. It wasn't too difficult to get things back on track. Christmas was already almost over. Folks had already made their peace with that. And besides, everyone was sort of numb. Suddenly, working through the holiday didn't seem so bad in the grand scheme of things. So we got to the end of the day. Made our quota. That was always the most important thing. And as that week carried on, something dawned on me. I had a responsibility, sure, and too much too quick at that. But I also had some control, some small bit of power, enough to make decisions. So I made one. I told my guys, I promised them, that if we all hunkered down and laced up our boots, I'd have them home on New Year's. No work. And that's what we did. It was tough, it was long hours, but we did it. That pit mine was never more quiet than it was that January 1st. And I was proud. We were working too hard. They were working us too hard. They'd worked jock to death. It was only right to give everyone a day at home with their families. And the work had gotten done anyway, so what did it matter? That's what I thought, anyway. Though that's not how some people saw it. I got a phone call early in the morning that same day. It was the owner. Started innocent enough with all the pleasantries. Though, obviously, you don't call a fellow's house at 6 a.m. just to say Happy New Year's. He told me he'd heard about what I'd done. Praised my management. Said he was sure that all the boys at the mine appreciated it. But that maybe I hadn't thought it all the way through. 
We'd met our weekly quota, sure. Though, as it was explained to me, when you rise to a certain position, you can't be thinking of things in days and weeks. You need to think in months and years. Then in the long run, one day could make a lot of difference. Even though I wasn't supposed to be thinking in days. That there were quotas, but that we should always be trying to get ahead of those quotas. To stay on track for other quotas. But make no mistake, we needed to stay ahead of those ones, too. I didn't really understand. But I said, I understand. Good. Good, he said. Because this wasn't just about his business. It was also about my future. Because in his mind, when you got a promotion, you stuck with it. If things didn't work out, there was no going back to what you did before. And the town... My town. It was small. Not a lot of other jobs. Not good ones that, uh, you know, like I said, you could support a family with. I understand, I said. Good. And he hung up. And I was just standing there in my kitchen in the early morning darkness, feeling that weight on my shoulders. Feeling it get even heavier. I should have just been waking up. Should have just started thinking about the day ahead and being with my family. But now I was only thinking about the next day. A day that would be very long. That might as well never end. A day that would stretch on until this very moment. Right now. Right here. I thought about that next day. And I thought about how Jacques must have felt in those last few weeks. And that was the first time I saw him. Not clearly, not for long. Just out of the corner of my eye. Standing there at the other end of the kitchen. Just barely lit by early morning moonlight coming through the window. I could see that he was still wearing his uniform. The bright orange jumpsuit that he'd died in. Though, it was something different, something new. A stain, splotches around his chest, running up and down the right and left sides of his upper torso. Dark splotches, nearly black in the moonlight. Nearly black, and just a tiny bit red. And then my eyes were drawn up to his face. It was him. It was Jacques looking the same as he had. Same craggy features and permanent stubble. Same head of thick, coarse, mostly salt, slightly pepper hair. Same face. Except for his eyes. His eyes were pale, almost white. Cloudy and lifeless, the only part of him that let you know he was actually dead. And as I looked into his eyes, he looked back into mine. He looked at me, standing there, standing in his shoes after the same kind of phone call he'd probably had a dozen times. And knowing this, as he must have, he gave a small, sad, soundless chuckle that I heard all the same. So loud it rang in my ears like dynamite. I had to turn away and cover them. And when I looked back a moment later, it was gone. I blinked, walked over and looked for the dust that would have been left by his dirty boots if he had really been there. And when I didn't find any, or 
convinced myself I didn't find any. I downed a glass of cold water and splashed some more in my face. It wasn't real, obviously. I was exhausted, stressed, so much so that I was having nightmares while I was wide awake. It seemed like a perfectly natural explanation, even if it wasn't a healthy one. So I tried to forget about it. I mean, what else was I going to do? I just got on with the day and tried to savor it. Eventually, everybody else got up for breakfast. We had pancakes and fresh fruit. I held my wife's hand and we drank our coffee. Slowly. I think that might have been the last time I felt truly happy. There was one moment, though. Rhonda. She must have seen the bags under my eyes. She always saw them at night, but most of the time I was out of the house before she could see them in the morning. She asked when I thought it'd all be over. The long days, the seven-day weeks. Soon, I lied. But it didn't look like she believed it. The kids were looking on now, too. And they were old enough not to believe it either. You have to understand. I'd seen what happens when someone, someone who lives in a place like this, just ups and leaves their job. Whether because they're fed up or in some noble cause, it's all the same. They suffer, and their families suffer. Money dries up, what's left turns into booze. A strike breaks, and at last their soul breaks with it, and then they decide, maybe it's easier not to go on. I'd seen it. I knew it well. I'd grown up in one of those families and come of age in what was left of it. I wouldn't let the same thing happen to Rhonda and the kids. And I wasn't under any illusion that there wasn't a better life out there. I wanted that for my children. But for me? Well, you, you know, maybe I figured it was too late for different places and better things. I never had much for imagination. I tried to explain all that to them. Not sure I did such a good job. And I left out the last part. But it was enough for that moment. Rhonda squeezed my hand, and the kids went back to throwing blueberries at each other. Or strawberries. I don't know. I'm starting to lose things. The borders of my vision are going gray. Black is creeping in at the very edges. All I can really remember for sure is this story. The things that led up to this. I was back at work the next day. From then on, it was a struggle. Every week, nearly every damn hour was a fight. Fighting to meet those quotas. Squeezing every little bit out of every minute of work. So I could try and find a day here and there to give some of the workers time off. Taking shit from those same people for not working hard enough for them. That part was hard. Matt Delahaye had been one of my good buddies for most of my life. And for that first while of being in charge, I'd still been one of them. One of the guys. But by the spring, things had started to sour and frustrations mounted. I'd noticed it with Matt first. I'd get the cold shoulder when I asked him how his family was. I couldn't find him at our usual lunch spot. And soon I just 
started having lunch alone in my office. He was the first one to question me in front of everyone, ask me what I planned to do when someone on blasting fell asleep standing up. Well, if you'd rather get some shut-eye, I'm sure someone else could use the hours. That's what I said right back. And I knew then that I wasn't one of the fellas anymore. I was management. I wasn't just doing Jacques's job. I was the new Jacques. But it wasn't just the workload that had people worked up. There was bad news in the air. You know, just anxiety and bad feelings. Like I said, a lot of the mines in the province were closing. Political, uh... It was political. Safety concerns about what we were working with. That kind of thing. Not clean enough, not safe enough for this day and age. Was it concerning what they were saying? Sure. But working in any mine was dangerous. Still, though, you had a few people worrying about that. For more folks, though, most of them, it was the closures that gnawed at them. People were concerned, and rightly so, that they were being worked to an early grave and the company knew full well that the mine could be closed at any time, that they were probably being worked so hard for that very reason. It was hard to disagree, but that was my job, <laughs> to keep the business running as usual. No matter what I knew, no matter what I thought. Because even if it was ultra, we needed to work, right? As much as we could while there was work to be had for people like us. People who didn't have high school diplomas, who didn't have prospects out there in the world. For our families, to get them out of here and set up. I needed to work. But not even that reasoning was good enough. It was met with leery eyes and suspicion. Because I was management. Because I was the new Jacques. When that was the second time I saw him. Mid-April, the day when we had the first few walkouts. I couldn't help but be angry at them, even if I understood what they were doing. Though, I'm hardly sure they gave me the same courtesy. Or thought about how what they were doing made the problems at the mine even worse. Stretched us even more thin. More hours to fill, more shipments to make with fewer people. I walked into my office, ready to call the owner and get an earful of shit. And my chest... God, my chest fucking hurt. So much I had to sit down and catch my breath. The stress, right? He'd been waiting in the corner of that little wooden shack office. The one the door covers when you walk in. Jacques looked... Worse... He'd lost a lot of color. He was gray. Not the gray of death and rot, though. More like pumice. His skin was dry and cracked and flecked away in parts. Even his uniform was losing its color and starting to crumble away. Especially around his chest, where those stains had been. Crumbling away to reveal something under there. It was hard to tell what, the sun wasn't quite at the right height, and there wasn't much light coming through the window. I'm just realizing now that I never tried to ask him why he was coming to me, what he was coming to me as. Maybe I just knew he'd have never answered even if I tried. But now I can't even say I did. We just sat there in silence for a moment, me sitting in his old chair, breathing heavy hand on my chest, 
and after a moment, slowly, he raised a hand to his own chest, just kind of absently tracing around it, scratching a bit at those exposed patches underneath the crumbling worksuit, little pumice flakes floating gently down to the carpet as he did. I didn't look away this time. I just watched him until, after a little while, he stopped and slowly made his way out the door, taking a left from the entrance. When I got up and looked outside, he was nowhere to be seen in the afternoon sun. Things start speeding up after that. Time is speeding up. Everything's starting to go dark. More walkouts, more long conversations, more of those inquiries in the news, people getting sick. My chest, so tight all the time. But I need to keep going. I'm so preoccupied with keeping the mind running that my own life is passing me by. Birthdays and anniversaries are missed. Late nights and early mornings. All they see is my scowling face before I go, and all I see is their disappointment. Don't they realize that I'm doing this for them? And I see him. Every time I falter, each moment of dread or doubt, every time the pain in my chest makes me wince, I see him. Drained of more color each time, so that eventually, he's just... white. His clothes have completely crumbled away, and his flesh is doing the same. Like he's a man made of mineral. Like he's made of... It. And you know, other people saw him too. They told me. They told me about the creature skulking around the mine, leaving white flakes drifting in its wake. I don't know if there was any rhyme or reason to who saw him, whether they had the same thoughts and doubts and pains as me. But I told them all the same thing. The same thing I'd say about any of their worries. The news, the closures, the illnesses... I told them it wasn't real. When I knew it was, when I felt it, saw it, saw him. And now it's Christmas. I'm here. I might as well be. There's nobody waiting at home. She's been staying at her parents the last few weeks and took the kids with her. I told her I would go see a doctor, but... I never did. I told her I did. But she always knew when I lied. Even if she didn't, no explaining away blood on a handkerchief, or going down two pant sizes in as many months. And that was the last straw. I just couldn't make the time. <laughs> I wonder what she'll think now. I hope she'll forgive me. Now I could say how it happened, I think. I was driving a large hauler down to the bottom of the mine. There weren't all that many people left, so it was all hands on deck for every task that needed doing, and none of the new temps were qualified to drive that class of vehicle. I was driving down the dirt and gravel path, thinking about everything I just said, when all of a sudden I had a flash of pain, worse than it had ever been like hot iron clamps on my insides, squeezing, squeezing so tight until my eyes shot open. He was there, 
Jacques was there, standing a few dozen meters down the road. And in that instant, that feeling of hot metal inside turned into fury. This was all his fault. Everything, all this had been his fault. Right? When he died and left me that fucking job. And the pain, that had only started after I started seeing him. My foot fell heavier on the gas. I sped up. I was gonna ram that piece of shit. But then, something happened. I'm so confused. I blinked right before I hit him. But I didn't hit him. Someone else, someone familiar. And I wasn't in the truck. I was standing in the road, the truck barreling down on me. But who was driving? Delahaye? I blinked. I blinked, and I was back in the driver's seat. Someone disappeared into the truck, but I didn't feel the impact. Didn't see anything behind me. I turned back, and now Jacques was there with me, sitting in the passenger seat. Now he was all white substance. He didn't even have a face. He was just white fiber in the shape of a man with two sinking holes on the left and right sides of his chest. Two holes with nothing in them. And without a word, he leaned over to me. We were still barreling down the road. He raised the two white stubs of his hands and pushed them into my chest. I watched them just dig and carve their way into my insides. There was no resistance either. They were almost gliding. And all of a sudden, that tightness was gone. I could feel the heat and pain diffuse through the rest of me. But it wasn't so bad anymore. And as he pulled his hands out, blackish red sludge dribbled down onto my clothes, oozing from the two gaping holes in my chest with nothing in them. Or, no, lungs, at least. The truck was still picking up speed, and I realized then that I couldn't move my body anymore. I didn't know exactly when it happened. Maybe even that first bit of acceleration had just been the dead weight of my leg. I certainly couldn't steer. And the last thing that happened, the very last thing, was hitting the slope and the gas tank going up. Now, I don't know where I am. No clue how far my body got flung. Jacques is looking down on me. Or I'm looking down at someone else. I'm not sure. Time has gotten all fucked up. They're putting me on a stretcher. The medics, I guess. It wasn't the crash that killed me, though, they're saying. Lungs just gave out. I just expired, probably while I was still driving. They're not sure how it got so bad. They've got respirators on. Good thing. The blast put a lot of white in the air. It's falling down like snow. I can feel it. I shouldn't be breathing. 
My lungs are useless black goop. But I can still feel it. Getting into me. Filling up my vessels and cavities. Changing me. I'm trying to look ahead right now. Look into the future, if that's possible. I need to know that they're out of this place. That my children are anywhere else. But I don't think it works like that. My mind is trapped here. Though, maybe if I can't see them, that's solace enough. I guess Maddie's going to replace me. I should check up on him once in a while. It's a hard job. It's a lonely one. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free, as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, Falling, White Like Death, was written and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Victor and Chase T. Hopper, and a very special thanks to Matthew Delahaye for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.